0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. I am delighted to be joined on this episode by Linda Jackson, who is a writer, a singer, a publisher and a creative writing tutor. Linda has published short stories and poetry, Well, most recently she has published the first of three memoirs, The Siren Awakes. She's also the owner-editor of Seahorse Publications, which is a publisher offering opportunities to new and established writers born in Scotland or resident here. Well, she's also a creative writing tutor, having already gained a PhD in literature and philosophy from Strathclyde and Warwick Universities. Linda also has five albums of music to her name, has performed throughout the world. And you can check out her latest song, Sirens, which is from her forthcoming new album. On SoundCloud, if you just check for Linda Jackson and you spell that J-A-X-S-O-N. Linda, thanks for joining us on the Read All About It podcast. That is uh, quite an impressive CV of a whole variety of different artistic forms. Is that again? Is that something that you've you've always been interested in? Obviously, music, but writing, and quite often combining the two.
1: I think I, I, I came up always reading poetry. I liked poetry, which was a bit of an anathema in my house, if you know what I mean. They were tele-watchers and I was always up in my movie, poetry books and things. And my father was a fabulous singer. I came from a house of singers and musicians, like a lot of us did. That was the way it was, you know. And when I was doing a, a bell cell Irish granny, it was just, you know, the other thing, you know, all the kind of, every kind of song you could possibly imagine there. <laughs> so we had a wonderful time. Yeah, and I think I've always ran at life, really, to be honest. I'm quite old. I'm older than I look, I think. And I have lived a full life. It's always say. If I spontaneously combust tomorrow, boy, have I done it as much as I could have, you know? It's just I've always been quite busy.
0: And I suppose that the, the good thing of that, I'd imagine, is that you're not just focusing, because you're not just focusing on writing, as, as I mentioned, that you obviously write across the different forms. Obviously, you run a publishing company as well. You teach creative writing and then obviously the music as well, which I've had a couple of listens to the song Sirens, but I I thought I'll just have it fresh in my head just before we record this. And I suppose that's the frustrating thing of the lockdown is that you were all ready to go with a new album as well, just before all this
1: happened. I mean, they made it Celtic Music Radio of the Week during the lockdown. So I had to do the interview by phone because it was all booked up for me to go on. And I was quite excited because my mother died last year and I had to kind of stop gigging just to, you know, my family live in Australia. And um, I just went to live with my mum. So I stopped gigging. This was me just, I'd been writing songs. So put them all together and then Celtic Music Radio. But I also had really nice venues booked for the launch and i started booking up gigs again because I had to kind of stop playing. Sometimes, I mean, I went out on the road a lot with bands and it's very, very exhausting. I remember at one point coming home from a wee tour and I was shattered. I had kids and all that. And I started reading biographies of women singers and I think, no wonder, they, no wonder they don't manage, you know. So I just thought, no, I'm going to go back to my kind of academic head and earn my money that way. And then I can choose what I sing and choose when I sing rather than having that running about in the back of hands for weeks and ends, you know. So, But that is where my heart lies, I have to say. I'm at, I'm at my most me in the middle of a song. And yeah. you
0: find as well, again, with anybody who does any sort of artistic form, when you hear the final verse, because that song, Sirens, that was have started, I'm guessing, just as an idea in your head or a, or a tune or a melody or a, or a few words. And then when you hear, you know, does the magic ever end with that where you, you maybe can still sit down and go, ah, it's not bad.
1: I'm very, very self-critical, but Sirens, I have to say, I've got um, Alan Thompson on bass on that, and he's phenomenally good. And uh, Morph, Kevin Dobie on guitar, great saxophone player, so... The way that worked, we just went into a studio and Morf would play some guitar. And I'm quite spontaneous. I would just start singing. Whatever came in, out of my head, some of it would be naff. But when we did it again, I would say, well, keep that verse, that verse, and let's fix some lyrics there. So it's quite automatic writing, you know. And I can't play guitar or piano particularly well, in fact, hopeless. But I can sit in the house and play them and get ideas together. But that song, I never did that. I just literally went in and spontaneously came out with it. And it's funny because it was quite a difficult period, to be honest. And I think it's as real as it gets. And I can still listen to it and think, oh, no bad, hen. You know, that kind of feeling. I just think it's okay.
0: I think that is is quite modest. As I say, I listened to it just before we started recording. And I just, it was one of those songs that, and especially when you're listening to the laptop, quite often you listen to music. I close my eyes and just listen to it, which is what I think always what you should do with the music and just listen to it. you do not watching a screen. And I thought it sounded great.
1: Thanks very much, Paul. Thank you.
0: One of the things I was going to ask as well, in terms, it will kind of lead us nicely into the, the first book that you've chosen, and your favourite book from childhood. And you mentioned you already you, you loved reading poetry when you were younger. And again, does that help you when it comes to writing lyrics for your songs?
1: Yeah, I think I, I, Mum thought I was staying the night with a pal in and Barhead when I was 14, and I was actually with a whole lot of people in the back of a van going to see Joni Mitchell in Wembley with Neil Young. So I was writing to Leonard Cohen, Neil Young quite early especially Joni Mitchell, as a young girl. And these lyrics of poetry, you know, these people are writing poetry. James Taylor, I was a big James Taylor fan. So as well as sitting writing Mon songs at that time, some of which I've still got, they were very influenced by these poetic kind of singer-songwriters, you know. So I would say definitely there's a coming together of the two things.
0: That's some gig, that, uh, Joni Mitchell and Neil Young.
1: Oh, honestly. And he was very ailing at the time, so there was a wee rumour that he might come on. We were maybe 18-year-olds who were ancient when you're 14 or 13, but they were saying apparently Neil Young might be there, but I had kind of looked and thought, no, he's ill. But she brought him on, and together they sang Helpless. Oh, never forget it. I think my mum only found out about that about 10 years ago.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You kept it secret (laughs) for a long time then. Yeah, I did. Um, I mentioned how poetry links back to your first choice, which was your favourite book from childhood and the book that you had chosen. It's called The Golden Road, which is a poetry collection for kids and that takes you right back to primary school days.
1: This is it here, Paul. It's The Golden Road and it's ancient. And when I, when I, I always use this, I'm teaching for poetry and it says in there, there's well, teen people had it, but it says in there, St. Charles's School and then my own writing. My name's Crilly, right? My own name, so it's Linda Crilly. Uh, St. Charles School, I'll not tell the date because it gives a lot away <laughs> about my age, but it's totally ancient. So I must have been a wee mini tea leaf. I must have loved it so much I had to take it away with me, you know.
0: You're a woman after my own heart because I, I've told this story often that one of my favourite books from school days, secondary school, was Catch 22, and I've still got my copy, which fell into my school back. I mean, what was it, even at that early age, that caught your imagination then in terms of those poems?
1: I lived in Glenburn and I used to live up near the Breeze, and I, I don't know how I got an education to be honest because I was dog dogging school and running away up the Breeze. and I'm a big Christina Rossetti fan to this day but there's a wee line in this, there's a couple of lines Boats sail on the rivers and ships sail in the seas But clouds that sail across the sky are prettier far than these There are bridges on these rivers as pretty as you please But the bow that bridges heaven and overtops the trees And builds a road from earth to sky it's prettier far than these. That's Christina Rossetti's wee poem for children. And I used to run away up the Glenifer Braes and just lie my back up there and look at the clouds uh, when I was quite young. I don't know how I survived it now. I, I can't even imagine doing that now in a bright day. I'd be too frightened with the places I went. But I used to go up there and, and that spoke to me, that kind of poem, you know, just being outside and, being somebody and having a chance to go somewhere.
0: Do you think as well, because I always think is, you know, when you think back to school days, how important the books are that you read, but also the maybe even the teachers who no. are giving you those books, but also giving you that lifelong love of words and as you, in, in your case, like poetry and, and
1: books. And you can be in amongst, I think, a lot of difficult teachers. I went to a convent school for six years, an all-girls school, and I was kind of lucky to get there because I came from a housing scheme and a couple of years before it had been fee-paying. So I think this was is the beginning of chaos. Uh, but for me, it was a saving grace. And you could have some teachers that, whether they were nuns or not, that maybe seemed a bit strict for you or a bit out of, in a different planet. It only takes one. It takes one teacher, I think, to invest and have belief in you, you know. And it can change... You can really change yourself around. I was quite wild up to I was about third year in school. No, I don't mean bad, just crazy, you know, having a laugh and all that all the time. Probably looking for my stage, if you know. Always yeah. making people have a giggle and stuff. And some teachers respected it in a way of being a personality or whatever kind of personality you have, but there's other ones that would crush. I always remember one woman taking me aside, having a kind of long talk to me and, um, I, ch- I literally changed out. I-, I wasn't the girl that uh, shook her hair out and took her glasses off and went wild. I was the girl that toy- tied her hair back and put her glasses <laughs> on. You know, I did it the other way. And I had kind of failed my prelims and stuff, no levels, and ended up with 11, no levels. I just never stopped. And then I thought, and my house, while it was lovely, could be a wee bit chaotic, you know, with a little baby and all that. And I remember looking about and thinking, I'm living a level like this, you know, but much as I loved everybody. yeah, I just had down, you know. So I-, I think teachers can save people.
0: I mean, are you conscious of that as a a creative writing tutor? And obviously you are helping people on their own journey. But, you know, the fact of maybe one thing that you say or or point them in a certain direction, you never know where that's going to end up.
1: I hope so. I mean, I have had a lot of respect and and kind of, you know, not that that matters, won a couple of awards and hotels and stuff for teaching. I've taught all my life, primary, secondary, uni, colleges. My whole life's been teaching. And now it's it's great because teaching the centre of a lifelong learning at Strathclyde, now you get people who maybe have just worked their graft all their life and now they've always fancied writing or they wanted to write something about maybe a parent's life or something interesting for the mining communities and stuff. And I just say, well, you've made you've paid your page of money here, now let's go for it. you know. And I'm quite conscientiously applying myself, uh, probably above average, I would say. And that isn't me blowing my trumpet, it's just a fact. I know, you know that I'll work above average to help people as much as I can because, and not just in Centre for Lifelong Learning, you know, I run my own things and get some young people on that, you know, maybe just a wee bit, feel themselves a bit uncomfortable. remember a fabulous writer now who's published widely, William Letford, coming and he's saying, don't know if I'm at the right meeting, you know, when he was coming for an interview, he said, my father worked in the pits, he said, and I work up in the roofs, he says, I'm not sure if working class people are allowed to walk the earth and write poetry. And I said, just we your comment alone, your own. That's it, you know, what a way to think. so, And he's published, he's a fabulous poet, well known now. But the thing.
0: sometimes it's it's just somebody who can give another person that, that just wee bit of confidence and kind of reassurance that actually, A, they're not alone in what they, they do or what they want to do, but actually it validates it.
1: Definitely. And, you know, I think that is a quite a humbling experience, you know. I, I, I've And, I, you know, there's people I work with who are much better than me at what I do, and that's a joy, you know. You just see them writing something you go you know and then, then you see them getting a book out and i just met someone recently a book of his have published and he's maybe in his 50s but he looked about seven when i handed him the first proofreading copy of his poetry he was just like this is something else man i <laughs> just loved it and yeah. it's lovely to see that you know
0: i suppose that's like that wee bit of pride that you can have then of helping them on to that point where it's there's a publication there
1: They're a bridge. I'm just a bridge, really. I see myself as a bridge. If they've got it in them and are determined enough, if I can help them cross over to that and get it out and then go on to do other things, that's my job.
0: In terms of your own book choices, taking you on from your favourite book from childhood, and then I, I take a leap forward to kind of teenage formative years. And the book that you chose was Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte.
1: I think I'm a, I mean, I'm a closet romantic, well not that much of a closet romantic. I'm completely a romantic and I think I've, I'm watching my granddaughter now who I've just given, she's a young teen and I've just given her uh, Wuthering Heights and I've got the film and she's reading it with her mum. I think it's a great book but I always warn her against the dark Heathcliff, you know every young girl, you know, Heathcliff <laughs> menacing and dark and you know the one you want even though he's very difficult. I always think you have to read that with a bit of um, have a wee bit of warning call. But I just loved it, all the nature and, of course, the whole romanticism attached to the Bronte sisters as well. I was quite in my teens when I went down to see the moor and all that kind of thing. I live in moan and I'm quite an independent person. I like travelling and moan. So, and I've always been like that. You know, I've been married a couple of times and whatever, but I mean, I've not entirely moan all the time, but I quite like a backpack and a way I go, you know, Australia, Canada. And as a young person, as I say, I used to go up with Brazen moan. So imagine all these sisters down there taking to the Heath in the corners of the Heath to write about Heathcliff and the like. I was slowing over with that.
0: I mean, is that a book that, were you first introduced to that at school then?
1: I think I was introduced to it at school. Again, I think it was a teacher that mentioned it. We looked at Charlotte Bronte's work and then we were talking to the sisters and Emily was a strange one, the one that was a wee bit left field. So, you know, I heard that. So I went away to read her then. I, I, I don't know if we would have been reading too much Emily Bronte in St Margaret's Convent. I'm not sure. I can't actually remember 100%, yeah. but that's where I would be introduced to her for sure.
0: Because it's a kind of sad poignancy, because it was that's her only full-length novel. And she passed away, it was published in 1847, she dies the following year, without A, developing the talent that she has, but even seeing what the reaction to the book was.
1: It's very sad, and I think then when you see Kate Bush's interpretation through the song that she did, I absolutely loved Wuthering Heights, her floating about, dancing and escaping at the window and all this. And I kind of also thought that was Emily Bronte. I remember watching it and think that's like Emily Bronte trying to, getting a life because apparently she was quite secluded in herself and remote so I know I was mad for Kate Bush as well so that came back during that time
0: can I just make a confession here I, I, I can't stand that song I'm really sorry
1: <laughs> well you either, you either love it I think you either love it because I, I, I you can't even say men don't like it women like it I know men that love it and I know women that really hate it you know because I think it's just like a laugh what is she running about carrying on like that for you know and in the video, people really either love or hate the video. I think I think so French and Saunders doing a spoof of it. And it was perfect, you know. And it was like the argument, ever never liked it. What they did with it just answered that, you know.
0: When I was asking you about these choices, and you obviously picked that one, but you did mention uh, the line where you said, my father used to balance this up by having me join him to watch Tony Bennett on
1: TV. My dad used to say to me, look, daughter, see how you're doing. He used to call me the daughter. I mean, he's like a, an idol of mine, you know. He's a fabulous guy. You used to say, look, daughter, see how you're doing all that up there. Nambi pambi said, I love it. It's developing a side of your nature, but we need to get you back down into the world. You have to do something for people. You have to be able to be in the real world. So we, we watched different miners rights and I went with the doors at that time. You know, he was, we were working for the Labour Party. He was a socialist thinker and I used to go down the doors with him. Uh, I actually remember, I was, I was going to this, door of this high flat and pays. And this man answered, probably put an ass in his trousers, you know, a string vest. This is a way back in the 70s. And I was saying, oh, sir, I hope we can, I'm sure we can rely on your vote for the Labour Party. My dad would be up another close or another high flat. And this guy looked at me and he said, you're not bringing that in here. You know, and he said, I'm Tory. I'm blue through and through. The Crown, the team, and the Conservative Party. So I won't have any reds coming in here. And that was Labour, you know. And I, I remember thinking, that's incredible. That man probably can't buy a pint this weekend and he yeah. wants to vote for the Tories and the Queen but that's what can we say that's part of the whole thing I mean it's part of the problems that we have as a working class people with working class backgrounds investing in those who will keep them in that place you know so my father was like that so he was always telling me you know to get on it so I did I went to folk clubs listening Black Lake Minor I was down in the minor strike the miners, you know and Tony Ben. he loved him but it did balance up the Wuthering Heights dances
0: was that a household of like them encouraging you to read, or just you know oh, as yeah. part of your you know was a or just telling you like that's one of the keys, just read,
1: read, read? Yeah, my father, you know that generation. If you want to, if you want to do end of your life, just grow yourself, grow yourself, and the best way to you grow yourself, daughters, to educate yourself. And they'd come from the miners' rows in Belsill, where my his oldest brother Thomas, he went to Glasgow University in the thirties, and that's unheard of. I remember my old granny saying. You know, you could get merchant seamen coming for the miners' raws, You never get a, an air force squadron you know, leader. Yeah. It's a big, huge pride, and I mean, I heard all that from my father about his oldest brother, who then, of course, died in the war. So that gets in. If you see someone that you adore being so emotionally moved in that way by something, if, it, if it's if it's for your parents, it'll be for you.
0: Well, we're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddehy, and my guest, Linda Jackson. Linda, we're on to the third question, and that is a book that you would recommend to anyone. And the book that you've chosen is The Loch of the Green Corrie by Andrew Gregg, and that is as good a recommendation as anyone can give. Everyone and anyone has to read that book.
1: You love that, I do. I I I, every class, and I'll say to people, say to women, you know, it's ostensibly about fishing, but it's about so much more than fishing, you know. And it's like poetry when you read it. It's poetic prose all the way through. There's slant rhymes in it, you know. I had the good fortune to introduce Andrew Gregg at I Write with his wife, Leslie Glaster, and I love her work as well. So I sat between the two of them, you know, just think, what what an honour this is, because I really enjoy all his work, the golf ones, you know, that he's done them with. And I think, actually, it's a wee bit like, Edwin Welsh bringing a kind of people to writing that maybe don't don't read that much. I think Andrew Gregg has managed. You know, a golfing book or a fishing book don't look like his. So he's introducing style and other levels of thinking. I think to people. You know, I've my brother's a golfer, but he's. He, does, he just thinks I'm kind of oh, my still out there. You know, he just goes to the booze and Celtic. And he, he lives in Australia now. and still gets his Celtic you sent over and all that kind of thing. But I sent him Andrew Gregg's book about golf. And he just, it's, that's amazing. And you can see it tapping on people in a wee way. Yeah. The Lock of the Green Corrie, when I read it at first, I loved it so much. I just got myself together and went up to Ascent and tried to do it. I've tried three times to see the Lock of the Green Corrie. And I've still, up,
0: still no luck?
1: I've been up to, honestly, my thighs and these locking waters and just had to give up. The rain coming on and, you know, I think you can't do it in your own. You have to do it with somebody because you start to get a bit worried as you're climbing these hills and you're up to your, you know, long waders and it's perished. You can't really see and I mean, if anything happens to me now. I'm at it, you know. So I'm going to go as soon as the lockdown ends with a group of people and we're going to go to find it.
0: Because I'm hoping as well that, you know, one of the, maybe one of the positives of the lockdown, post-lockdown, is people maybe start to appreciate what's on our doorstep, in terms of us and, and these sort of places that are so steeped in, not just the history of, of Scotland, but just the history of humanity and, and, and the earth.
1: I mean, I, I've, uh, because again, my mum was somebody I didn't want to travel abroad, you know, and I've got family abroad, my in-laws are in Spain, you know, I mean, I have obviously gone, but I have got, I mean, in the Black Isle, I've spent a long time up there, and 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 it can encourage me when my books I'm writing a novel and it's got three settings and they're all in Scotland and I'm trying to kind of open these places up to people's interests apart from the book if you know just to I mean the ascent region is unreal
0: because one of the things when the the lock of the green quarry was recommended to me and I hadn't heard about the book and my pal had recommended it, so I went and got it. And as soon as I started reading it, I just thought it genuinely was one of the books. I, I mean, I must have read it within about a day. I just thought, this is just, as you say, the writing's absolutely beautiful. But there's always a wee part of me that not, it's not irritated. I always think, is this another one of these books that's kind of a great secret of Scotland? That there's loads of people who, who should know about this book, but don't. And I think it should be more widely known. It should be celebrated. as It's such a book that's entrenched in our world, really.
1: That whole area, once you go up there, you're on the clearances, you're on whether it should be called Sutherland, you know, you're on that whole historical trip with him because you can't ignore it when you're up there. Once you, I don't know if you've gone up. I mean, I always say to people, go up to Ascent, before you go, read this book. You know, you go and get the key for the post office man who's not there anymore. I tried to kind of do it. Yeah, I agree. I think there are some things that just they bang the drum about all the time. And then there's a book like that that would tell you so much about this country in terms of history, geography, layout and our beautiful stylistic poetics that are in there, you know.
0: Sometimes, and I don't know if it's a a Scottish thing or a Scottish literary thing. I think sometimes we don't shout loud enough about some of the great writing that people from Scotland produce, amongst Mm -hmm. them this book, The Lock of the Green Corrie.
1: I don't know what that is. That might be one of these. I think they've talked for years about the Scottish people being down on themselves, you know. And the kind of, I think it was Douglas Gifford who died recently. talked about the schizophrenic Scot, you know, that they, they have a hard time with themselves. And it is that thing as well, you know, contrast with America. If somebody puts a light bulb on, they're celebrating it and tell <laughs> how wonderful they are. And here people do great things and they kind of keep it quiet, you know.
0: And again, it's something I've mentioned in these podcasts before, is like I'm a big fan of Robin Jenkins. And I always think, again, that he's one of our best kept secrets. But I just think that there's loads of, and then when you start looking at some of the great writing and back, Stevenson, James Hogg, there's just like a whole variety of classic world literature. Alistair Gray, there's just loads of people that, you know, we should, you know, as a country, we should be absolutely heralding. But yeah, loads of people within Scotland have probably never read any of these authors.
1: Robin Jenkins, I mean, Stevenson and these people, they're they celebrated. But Robin Jenkins, is, I think, as you say, a bit like this. You know, those wee boys, you know, picking up the climbing up the trees are so fabulous. I mean, Robin Jenkins, I love his work because, again, it gets right down to uh, the nitty gritty of the psychology of people and the way they are with the land. And there's an essential feeling with him that people are connected with the land. So I don't know why these things don't come out. They're not on they weren't in the syllabus when I taught at university, you know. Do you think per head of the population in this country and the lockdown might be contributing to that? But even before then, I mean, probably post all the SNP business and looking for independence and things. I mean, there's a mushroom of literature. It's just growing and photography and arts and music. Per head of the population in Scotland is well outstripping itself. Fabulous state of industries yeah. going on here.
0: Well, I mean, I'm happy in every podcast to tell people amongst the many books to read that they should read The Lock of the Green Corrine. I'd mentioned to somebody recently, it's funny, you know that way when you recommend a book, I do it quite often where I'll read a book. So for example, I read a book on the story of the Wichita Lineman, the song, and it was all about Jimmy Webb and his career. And it's just, it's the most beautiful book and I've been you telling tell people.
1: will send me an email with the details. I, like I, I will do. But well, what I'll account. say,
0: I'll send you an email because part of my story is I've been telling friends, and they're saying, oh, that sounds like a great book." But I'm, I'm loath to load it out because I just, I can't bear to part with it at the moment. Yeah, but yeah. the book itself is just so, because it's such a fantastic song. But it's just about so much more than just that song. So.
1: Do You read books a few times.
0: No, not really, no. I mean, I, there's occasional books where I'll, I'll read again, but I just always, whenever I go to pick up a book that I've maybe read before, I think, well, there's a whole pile of books I've never read before, new and, and old, that I think I should really read them. But there's very few that I would that I go back to. But I, there's there's loads that I just, I'm loath to part with.
1: I know, I know. And working and teaching, I, I've given so many things away to say, you know, like Neil Young's Harvest, I must have bought that album six times because I say, you need this. This is what you need. And they go away with it. And then you never see it again. Luckily the Green Cory. you need this. I don't know how many copies of that I bought. Now I just say, you've had it. You know, you're not getting anything. This is where you can buy it. You're not getting it. I love it. And every class I get, every class I've come in the last few years, I mean, I've introduced them to it because I just think if anybody wants to write, there's something so special in that book.
0: We take you from a book that you would recommend to anyone, as I say, that's as good a recommendation as any, to a book that you couldn't be paid to read again. And you didn't kind of go into the specifics of any particular author or book, but you just mentioned the endless stream of crime fiction by people like James Patterson and people of that ilk. So formulaic, and interestingly... I've never read a James Patterson book and he's sold something like three hundred million copies. He's published hundred and forty seven novels in the last forty four years. So that's over three novels a year. But it's like a, a brand rather than an artist. And he doesn't often he doesn't always write his own he's maybe got the idea, but it's always it's a James Patterson brand, but somebody else, maybe a ghostwriter, is actually writing the book.
1: And I feel kind of, I suppose, I don't want to take anything away from people who love crime fiction because it sells in the, gla- in the Scottish, you know, tartan noir. I can read that. It's not like crime fiction per se, but some of these formulaic ones, just like that. It's an industry. And if you're working in publishing or you're looking at new writers, it's quite off-putting if you go into any shop when there were book shops and see nothing from here because what it is is all these crime stories or love stories from that industry that's just multi-million dollar You know, and I think the quality of the writing, whatever it is, I don't even want to know anymore because I feel irritated by the swamping of the market and shops like Asda and all these big places. You have to say, is there any Scottish literature in Waterstones? You know, it's got better now, but with the demise of bookshops, we're seeing such a demise of choice. And these ones that sell at airports, 10 up penny are everywhere. And as you say, absolutely, I think it's just, I mean, James Patterson at least now puts another name beside it. It's like these are the Barbara Catlin love stories, there's a formula. If you just start in a different name and maybe a, another week in a of storyline, it just feels a bit, but you know, lots of people love them. Uh, obviously, I mean, they're first off the shelves as well.
0: Also, I think, I mean, it was interesting, it was a, it was a great quote, I think it was Stephen King said of James Patterson, uh, a terrible writer, but very successful. <laughs> he's, he's not a big fan, but I often feel you mentioned about like, the supermarkets, they have a limited amount of books that they stock. I'm never quite sure if the books are stocked because they're popular or they're popular because they're stocked and i think sometimes it's maybe it's not insulting to people who would go into a supermarket to read but it's not giving them the choice if you didn't put those books but put a whole as you say a whole range of other books say just like a whole shelf of you know scottish books new and old they would be successful as well because that's the market there's thousands of people are going through these shops every week and are looking to read if that's all that's there that's all
1: probably finance again you know somebody will be paying somebody to put them on the shelves yeah no whereas we don't there's not money there's not the money here to do that i mean I, i'm always saying to people i think small publishing is the way to go for md or publish yourself if you can because you you'll try and get quality work out there whereas i think where you've got that monolith that's just pushing stuff with finance behind it the quality of the work's not always there i'm not saying it always is not there but most often i think it's just it's just the business that's the sad thing we know that everybody knows that everybody around artists writers musicians would ever make much more money than they ever make but i was interested watching james patterson i think it was him that was behind the epstein video which i watched recently so I was quite impressed, I think it's him, um, because he looked into that as the massive crime and he seems to be behind the production of the storyline of that video, although it's a kind of, it's not fiction.
0: When I was just doing some research on him, he's described in, in his kind of even Wikipedia entry as a writer and a philanthropist. So he's used, I mean, he's, he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars, but he's very much into supporting public libraries in America and, you know, various campaigns with is it scholastic books in America in terms of trying to encourage young people to read. So in terms of he's using some of that wealth to try and encourage people to read to give access to people who might not be allowed or able to get books so you know well the quality you could you could argue for or against it but he's actually he's actually doing some positive things in terms of encouraging people, the future generations, in terms of literacy in America.
1: Fantastic. I didn't know anything about that, and that's what I'm saying. It's, and I think even doing that, if he's behind the Jeffrey Epstein thing, that's like a kind a of moral, you know, his, his moral compass is waving, you know, big time there to try and get something in that. So, yeah, I think it's... Uh, I think that's very commendable. I didn't
0: know that. You mentioned there when we were just talking about uh, in terms of publishing and, and, you know, the big publishers and how they they deal with it and the smaller publishers. And I'd mentioned in the introduction that you kind of owner and the editor of of Seahorse Publications. Again, when I was just looking on the website, it's that platform that you're trying to give to new but also established writers, uh, either Scottish or resident here, just because sometimes I think for a lot of writers, they feel maybe there's no way that they can go to get their, their work published, which is a great frustration.
1: Well, there isn't. I mean, that's the fact. There isn't the publishing industry on its knees just now, you know, the bigger ones. So I had just started that originally. I mean, to be honest, I need to look at a business model and MD knows and is what watches this will say that. You know, I should be maybe setting up as a charity and applying for money. I just fed it away in here, like a rodent, doing it for nothing, bringing it out for nothing. And then, well, I have to sell the book to try and recoup the cost of the graphics and the print costs and stuff. But the thing is, I know that I'll have to look into a way of trying to fund it properly or it will die like everything else because I'll die of exhaustion trying to do it. I just spoke to a couple of people this morning and said, we need to move it back six months because, you know, I'm pretty tired. And also I want to try and finish a project of my own and send that away to another publisher. I mean, that first memoir I brought out in my own, with the Seahorse 3s and being memoirs of things, I feel I want complete control of that. I'll bring the three of them out, but I've got a novel kind of in the wings, and I will try and send that somewhere else, but I know it'll be hideously difficult, because there's no money. There's no money. I mean, the internet's done a lot of wonderful things, not least withstanding and chatting to you today, but it's it's lost a lot for people in terms of downloading books for half a pence and all this. I think Amazon as well. I've got a few friends that have actually, you know, you know, they just get the thing together and send it to Amazon and they put it together for you and all of that. Um, and I think there's a lot of ways forward. I, I've got a kind of funny thing about Amazon, you know, the company, which maybe is a wee bit too, you know, yeah. standing in the moral ground a little bit. But... I'm at an age now where I can and don't bother, whereas I think if you're a young person, you just have to put a lot of things aside and fare it forward how you can.
0: About five years ago, I I wrote a book called Read All About It, and it was basically charting my year of trying to read more books, and then just how I got on with that, what I was reading and how it was impacting on my life. And I wanted it out as soon as possible after the end of the year. So I knew it was going to be difficult, A, to get a publisher, but also B, the publishing schedules are such that if you give them a book, it's maybe like two years before they get published, and I thought, that's not going to work. So I I went down that road of of self-publishing So effectively, I controlled everything in terms of all the design, all the layout. They host it. It's like a print and demand service. So you can, people can download it on Kindle. And if you want a hard copy, they just print. So if you want one, they'll print one. If you want 10, they'll print 10 that that way. So there's not really, there's no cost to you as an author you don't feel as if you've lost any money there's only a limited amount of markets obviously it's just through Amazon but again you know like sometimes you get a project and you've finished it and you want want it out because you want to move on to the next thing yeah. so it was quite good in that way because I then had a physical book then I could move on to the next thing that I was writing
1: have you still got copies?
0: I do. And unlike the Wichita Lineman book, I can send you, I can send you.
1: Would be I would love to read that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that is a big frustration because <clears throat> when people are writing something, they live, work and breathe it. And then they send it away and a publisher said, we might be interested but our backlogs. I know one person who's done this and it's a really great book. It's four years, three and a half to four years. And that's not guaranteed that they'll use it because if the market's changed at that time, they won't, but they can hold on to your book as well. <laughs> Yeah. So it's very difficult. I think it's, and it's the same in the music industry. People will take on people who do an album and then they might not bring it out because they've got somebody quite like that that's paid more money to get out there. So you've got people who are heart and soul involved in that creative enterprise who are walking up against business, hardcore business, you know, and I think that's what I wanted to do, just bring it out. And, and that's where I am with other people. I've got a wee editing service, but mostly if I really like someone's work, I'll say, I'll bring it out for you and just work away at it. And then I have to kind of, I'm quite good at organizing events and I usually sell maybe 80. It's difficult just now, you know, because you can't have them. But I would have maybe, my friend Leslie Benzie, I've just brought out her Fesson book, which is fabulous, poetry collection. But we had four launches, one in Aberdeen, one in Dundee, two in Glasgow. We were looking at another one in Edinburgh. We would have sold a lot of books. So I've got them carpeting the floor now because the lockdown came out the week before lockdown. So I walk on them now, not quite. You know, we've sold some online. You don't sell the same stuff online.
0: As you say, if it's an event, then people get to to hear the author reading from their work, get a chance to interact, and that is the best way. I think for every publisher, that's the best way for selling for selling books as well.
1: So would you still try and sell your book, or you don't do in with it now because it's over time?
0: I don't, it's there, it's always there so if, if somebody goes on they can they can see it I've got copies that, sh- as I say I can, you know, every now and again I'll just send them out to somebody if they want to, to read it I like what they did with it, I thought the quality was really good I, I didn't feel that if somebody was putting it beside another book you would necessarily go, well that's the self-published one and that's the traditional
1: Did you publisher. pick an image for it and all
0: that? Yeah, you can do, they can give you the option of designing something you know, they have a some sort of programme where you can design it but I, I had a friend who designed the cover so you basically, you download the book Template, you format it all yourself, and in terms of the and then upload that, you upload the cover, and then you can get a proof copy before they actually put it on sale. So it was a really straightforward process and actually quite enjoyable, just the whole design and layout of it as well as, as writing the yeah, book. My
1: friend Jacqueline Smith has just brought out of Slaves to Men and Gods, and she designed the cover as well. Very clever, and she's done that through Amazon, and she's getting quite a lot of sales. It's based in Ghana, so this book's actually se- will sell over there, you know, because it's worldwide, I suppose. Well, I,
0: stum- I stumbled upon it because it was a book I'd ordered, and it was from a traditional publisher, but it was quite a small publisher. And they used Amazon rather than in print too many copies and have stock there that they, they maybe might take them years to get rid of it. They had a small amount of stock, which they would have used for bookshops, but then for individual customers. They just use the Amazon service because it's a print in demand. So it cut down their costs. So I could understand that that makes sense as well. So publishers as well as individuals can use it. You're
1: cutting them. Amazon's a massive corporation. I have to say, I'm not in
0: commission for Amazon here, just in case everybody's thinking. No, no, it's just
1: (laughs) such a big monolith. And then I've now got this thing about the graphic designer I use, you know. He does a great job. I mean, he's got a job, but, um, you know, and then the printer I use. I know that they can struggle a bit. You know, and I know if I sent it away to a Polish printer, like I know people who do it, there's a Polish printer will do them for like one fifty a copy. Yeah, I might pay three fifty a copy, but I'm keeping that guy who's working away there in his wee shop, you know. And it's like that whole thing. As I say, my children are raised now. I don't need to think too much about it. and I'm not starving. Whereas, if I was at a different point in life, I would maybe not have capacity to think about any of these moral things or whatever. I would just be doing whatever I could do, you know. Yeah.
0: In terms of the podcast, we're on to the the fifth and final question. And that is the the book that you're currently reading and the book that you've chosen is Reckless Daughter, which is a biography of Joni Mitchell, who you mentioned right at the, the beginning of the podcast. And, you know, you mentioned she's a huge influence on your musical life.
1: Yeah. deep breath you know uh, she is uh, the circle game starting from the beginning and then to the end it's it's really always oh, about her i mean when i read these biographies this is one i hadn't read but I read these biographies over she probably could be quite stroppy and would have needed to be i imagine but it's just our actual lyrics the lyrics and some people find her voice a bit streaky and sometimes it can be and then i had a fabulous again morph who does he plays joni mitchell and my friend Liz Thompson, her brother Steve Riley, and he plays piano. And the musicians have got together to do a Joni Mitchell show I like me with her. You know, they kind of—it's such an investment their whole life, and you can tell when you say. And I met Steve, and it was all I always wanted to sing blue all my life. i heard it, and I'd sent him down a few things. I said, "I'm going to try this Johnny Mitchell review thing." So I set him down some songs, and then he came into the studio, and I just met him, shook his hand, and as I say, he's a friend of a good friend of mine, a brother of a good friend of mine. So I said, "If you managed to do blue, would you manage to do it?" i said, "Oh yeah, I've been living it all life." They just sat down and started it. I could hardly speak. We did the review, and it was really well received so there's something when you really get somebody goes in at an early point in your life, you know, and fortunately musicians I worked with during that had the same feeling about her. But I think she was an inspired writer and miles away beyond like for me, Dylan and all that. You know, Dylan I think's like a wee bit adapting from other people, Guthrie and everything where I think she's a total original, you, know, you know, even her chord structures and all that. So I love her and I love her work and I love reading about her. In fact I had the film Women of Heart and Mind on the other night and I was doing something, just uh, getting organised with something and I could listen to the talk about the film but as soon as she started a song, I had to stop. I had to stop dead. Even when I never turned around. and looked at it, I had to just stop.
0: And do you find when you're reading the book, you've got her singing in, in your head?
1: Yeah, this one, this uh, David Jaffa book, he does make lots of references to lyrics from her songs. So he will mention the songs and where they came at certain times in her life. Well, obviously with me trying to write my own memoirs, and I've sang since I was seven, singing in Melbourne, singing in wherever. There's something to, you know, I I get it. It doesn't matter what level of success, whether it's Tony Mitchell or me playing about in bands. There is something about the integrity of trying to sing from a very special part of yourself. Something that really means a lot to you and get it across and that circle out to the audience and let them not just hear it but take it on. And that's what I was trying to do with the Sirens album. You know, the Sirens albums. In fact, there's a song on it uh, called harvest and while i was in the studio recently just in february doing it i said we need to stop we need to stop and the guitarist said why do we need to stop i said i'm stealing this i know this song i'm st- i've stolen this for somewhere i'm not making it up and then i went home and because i just moved house recently i'm still opening boxes and there was a couple of boxes you carry everywhere forever and i thought right these are getting shredded in the bin and open disk and i found a notebook which i've still got for when i was 14 harvest by linda crilly I wow. oh, yeah, answered. I've been stealing it for myself.
0: <laughs> That's I'm incredible. Stealing
1: it for my fourteen-year-old self, you know, and it's a really emotional song, and it's got that Joni Mitchell feel, can I kind of say, you know, because the a wee bit the same of sirens, a bit interior, you know, that kind of try to bring something out for your inside or something that lives in you and comes out occasionally. So that kind of song. So I just thought I've always been a weirdo. always <laughs> So is that?
0: Is that kind of just then being implanted in you in your subconscious for all those years?
1: And I started singing this song and I thought, and he said, guitarist said, is this not Neil Young's Harvest? He did the Harvest. I said, no, no, it's somebody's, but it's not that. But I know these lyrics, so we just need to stop. So what a phone call that was when I phoned I him and said, look, I'm bringing the book. Can you maybe my wee fancy <laughs> writing and everything, you know. It was such a joy. I think it's her it's influenced me with all that.
0: When I had to listen on the SoundCloud, is there a Jodie Mitchell song on that? One uh-huh. of the, you, you cover, I can't remember what song it was I, I kind of had to quit listen to some of the other songs and I can't remember which one it was it was only the second or third one down and it was a, a Joni Mitchell song The very
1: final song on the new album is the first time I've ever done it and it's Woodstock Right. I did a version of Woodstock and I was very nervous because it's like touching the Queen you know or not that Queen that Queen reckless Daughter Queen and um, I feel I did it justice it's you know everybody really feels okay about it I do as well
0: My favourite Joni Mitchell song is River <gasps> which i just think is just just I'll perfect.
1: send you also a wee podcast and we singing it you can give me your honest oh, opinion on that song i did that with stevie riley in la bodega a nice gig we did it in there and um that, that again that's pure romanticism you might not have liked weathering heights paul but if you, really, <laughs> if you really like that river song because that's just all the same it's that romantic escapism isn't it i love
0: it that that and urge for going was the other one that i really i really love Every guest on the podcast, there's always at least one book that they recommend, I think. Once we're finished recording, I'm going to check that one out. I think that's the first one I'm going to read that.
1: And if you can, if you've got Netflix, watch Women of Heart and Mind. <gasps> Fantastic. And it goes well with this because I think David Jaffa was involved with it.
0: Sadly, we've, we've just about come to the end of the podcast, Linda. If anybody wants to check out Linda's book choices you can go to my website www.pokerade.com and every guest has their own individual page where i just list all the the book choices from the the various books i mentioned at the start you know in terms of and we spoke about a couple of times about your your album obviously the lockdown maybe slightly knocked things off in terms of schedule what what is the schedule now for the the new album
1: Well, I kind of got a bit down and left it to the side, but I'm trying at the moment to get, I'm going to try and get in touch to try and do a thing with the siren book and the siren album. And I'm writing the second memoir just now, but it's been very difficult because I'm writing the second memoir. And two months ago, I lived beside the Victorian infirmary. There was eight ambulances with the sirens on within an hour and a half. So I've actually brought that into the book, saying I'm trying to write about 1980, but it's 2020. So I need to do something about it, but I don't want to do an online sing anything of that album because I want it to be visceral. I want I, I need the feeling of, I always get an extra lead and walk into audiences. As soon as I get an opportunity, I will be launching the album and I've just got the pile of them sitting there waiting for that. But I am trying to go on to Radio Scotland to get it played about airplay. As I say, it was on radio. It was the week album of the week for a week, right? In the very first week of lockdown on Celtic music radio. So I need to get back to that. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I just had a wee bit of a a back bump, you know, when just a bit down about it. So now I'm kind of starting to see that right, I've got Leslie's book out, I've got that book out. I'm taking a rest from anybody else's work now in August and September. I'll back to the sirens and try and find ways through radio stations at first. An opportunity to open up for a launch somewhere. Who knows, Paul, But this is going.
0: Well, fingers crossed. And hopefully sooner or later, you're able to perform it to a live audience as well.
1: It lovely talking to you. Thanks very much. I'm going to buy you a pint. It's the first opportunity we get.
0: Excellent, I'll hold you to that Linda.
1: Okay, I'll see you soon.
0: Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy,
1: next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.